the socioeconomics had never lined up so that one person could support five people in a single household. Um, interest rates weren't good. There weren't, uh, the army wasn't paying for people's education and, and uh, it, it, you know, the economy wasn't booming. It was specific economics created that's that stability. It wasn't so much marriage. Most people actually, uh, a huge number, I think it's something like 50% of the people that married in the so-called golden age of marriage ended up getting divorced, which isn't so surprising considered how young they were when they met. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Geller. I'm a reader and a writer. Um, My most recent book is called Moving Past Marriage, Why We Should Ditch Marital Privilege, End Relationship Status Discrimination, and Embrace Non-Marital History. The publisher is Cleus Press. I'm proud to be with Cleus, which is the first gay and lesbian press in the United States. So that's a particular um, distinction of mine to be one of their authors. Uh, I'm also a professor uh, of English at Central Connecticut State University, and um, I teach Restoration and 18th Century Studies, which is the period between around the 1640s and the 1830s, when uh, I've learned in my scholarship, marriage changed quite a bit uh, as a cultural institution. And that's what brought me to writing these more general audience publications. Um, I'm really excited to be um, here with one of the women I very much admire from Connecticut, Sylvia Beckerman. Um, Welcome to Sylvia and me. Jacqueline, can I call you Jackie? Uh, Please call me Jackie. Jackie, I am so thrilled to have you here today. Uh, As you said, you're you're a writer, you're an author, and your your latest book is Moving Past Marriage. And you already gave the, the subtitles. Um, you are a professor, and what I love is um the university hired you because you write critically about matrimony. Um where should we start? I you know, everyone, especially women, uh, especially back in the 50s, women were supposed to go to college, but not to do much more than maybe become a secretary, meet an eligible guy, get married, and move to the suburbs, and then have children, and give up any career that they had, because her career now was taking care of the family. You are kind of debunking the myth of marriage. There's a history that I don't think most of us know about because we go by what we think is the norm, which is you got to have that ring on your finger, as the song says. So tell us a little bit of the history of marriage. You're starting in a very interesting place. And one of the things that scholars of marriage, and there are many, 
in the social sciences, in the humanities, um, really particularly in social history right now, um, remind us always is that that 1950s template was um, is often looked at as traditional. And people, particularly nostalgists, will look back at the 50s, at the great generation, and believe me, I admire people that <laughs> saved the world. Uh, in World War II, I, I'm not. I'm not. I think they were a great generation, but they look back at the at the the male breadwinner model is what they call it, um, and they see a great deal of social stability and a great deal of what what looked to be harmony on that surface. And they think if we could only get back to that, that's traditional marriage. In fact. That was a very strange moment that was anomalous. Um, there hadn't been anything like it before in our country. The socioeconomics had never lined up so that one person could support five people in a single household. Um, interest rates weren't good. There weren't, uh, the army wasn't paying for people's education and, and uh, it, it you know the economy wasn't booming. It was specific economics created that's that stability. It wasn't so much marriage. Most people actually uh, a huge number. I think it's something like fifty percent of the people that married in the so-called golden age of marriage ended up getting divorced, which isn't so surprising considered how young they were when they met. Uh, yeah, Sidoni Greenberg, a, a, a psychiatrist who wrote a column um, was one of many voices who said, if a gal hasn't a man in sight as her fiance, who she can expect a proposal from by the time she's 20, she should really be afraid. She might never get married. I mean, that was, spinsterhood was held up as this specter, this fearful, drab, tawdry existence. That would be uh, that would be you know incredibly um, um, frightening and and you'd almost be a social pariah. So it was actually mental health pra so-called practitioners used fear to instill this. Women were told they'd be loners and losers. Men who who might be nervous about supporting a whole household on one salary, taking out a mortgage when they were twenty three, were told that they were immature if they didn't want to shoulder that kind of responsibility, that they were stunted. Uh, uh, um, Dr. Popino uh, was, was, was the great marriage Diane at this time. And he ran something called the Mayo Clinic of Marriage. And he, he <laughs> said, it's unfortunate how many bachelors are stunted by mommy love uh, and, and are afraid to get married. And uh, you know, what they're, they're basically saying is you're, you're 21, you're sexually inexperienced, if not outright ignorant. And you're afraid to make a commitment that assumes that you will know exactly how you'll feel about your whole life and this one person for the next 60 years. I think any sane person would be terrified of that. But they were people were told my parents and their friends uh, were all engaged and really kind of getting pregnant and moving to the suburbs and taking out mortgages, huge loans by the time they were like 24, 25, 26. So this was really very unusual. Well, um, as you said, I'll interrupt yeah. a little. Uh, sure. They were they were very young, and it was it was supposedly the norm. And as you said, 
you know, uh, spinsterhood. And I forget what, because spinster was, was not originally a bad word. Spinster, uh, first of all, yeah, I'll, I'll just jump back. Jumping back to met, uh, you know antiquity, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, um, we're going to just have to come out and say it. The highest thing you could be was celibate. Uh, marriage was at best. I mean, it was it, the church ran ran Europe, and the most the the women accorded the greatest respect, who had the greatest authority, were nuns, abbesses, prioresses, anchorites, people who supervised religious communities. Uh, you know, there were female Christian mystics like Julian of Norwich, Marjorie Kemp. These were people that were role models. Um, there was a lot of anti-marriage writing pouring out of the church and marriage was not considered uh, the golden standard of emotional maturity or a particular virtue. It was, um, it, it didn't have the luster that it would take on in modernity. Um, and not, not, not surprisingly, the word spinster um, comes from spinner. And right, we know from the, um, let's say the high middle ages it meant, it, on, it meant a woman who spun fabric and create and manufactured textiles to support herself independently. It was just a neutral occupational term. Then, um, actually, it was a positive occupational term. Then it became, it was positive. Then it became a neutral term in the 17th century. It became a legal term. It just meant a woman who had never been married and didn't expect to ever be married. So it was different than a widow. So when you have women signing their names in church parishes, they'll say Jane Smith Spinster. And that was just a legal designation. Then when marriage took on a romantic patina, which actually culminated in the 1950s, but really started in the 1700s, spinster became a derogatory term. It became a, a, a term of a great opprobrium and desuetude of shame. Um, and it was um, like old maid or- uh, well, well, that's that's what most people think of when they think of, think of yeah, spinster. They, but don't, I wanted... they don't know the history. It's, a, it's unfortunate. I, I, I want wanted... to- spinster and, and I'm very proud to reclaim that term. And it makes me feel um, so proud to be part of this um, history of spinsters and, and bachelors who've done tremendous things um, to make our culture such an interesting culture, such an interesting- um, history that, that would be so different without us um, contributing. And, and I'm still struck. I know bachelor is a higher status word than spinster, but still with the popular psychology movement, there's this insinuation of immaturity. So I want to move a little bit forward. So now okay. we have, we have some of the history um, a lot yeah. of it we understand goes back thousands of years, but yet the 1950s sort of was a huge culmination of- It was the crescendo of a lot of forces that had okay. been building for, uh, let's say, 200 years. Okay. Um, so, so now we have this crescendo, and now we're seeing that, um, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of what is called gray divorce going on because people got married- very, very young. Women weren't working. They had given up their careers or they didn't have one and they started a family and they were supposed to be staying home 
and all the burden as far as financial was put on the male. It has changed and it's still changing. Um, but let's go into the, uh, some of the, the facts. I mean, one of the most amazing things is that there's over a thousand benefits that marital people um, can receive that non-married people, non-marital people do not. I know one of them is social security. Can you kind of go into a little? Yeah. Because um, I think that is so interesting that it's not really something that people perceive. Well, I think that um, Doris Lessing said it perhaps best, um, that the most important facts, the key facts, the essential facts are the ones that are taken for granted. Yes. Um, and um, what um, Alfred North Whitehead, a great philosopher of the early of the 20th century said is that if you ever want to really understand an era, don't look at the headlines. Don't look at the public discourse at what people are talking about. Look instead at what no one's talking about, because that's where you'll find the deeply bedded assumptions. No one will think to talk about them because for most people, there's no other way of conceptualizing things. Now, the idea here in the United States, and when I'm interviewed by Australian or European interviewers, they're totally stunned by this, is that marriage should be a dividing line between haves and have-nots. Um, marriage does not matter legally the same way in many other countries. And, it, and um, Sweden is always the example of a country which makes no, there is really virtually no discrepancy between the married and the unmarried. Interestingly enough, Sweden has the lowest rate of partners separ separating uh, of any country in the world. So I think that's 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 interesting. But um, let's start with um, Social Security. Okay, so this is a really crux federal program. It's a federal retirement program that we all pay into and that we all count on. I think I think most people count on it uh, as they plan their futures. I certainly have always worked. I uh, worked through graduate school. I had, you know, pretty low status, you know, grueling part-time jobs in college and waitressing and so forth. And then I was, uh, you know, worked for a nonprofit and then, you know, I, I got some graduate funding, but even my graduate, my measly graduate teaching paychecks, you know, Social Security yeah. was deducted from everyone. It's automatic, oh, as all of my paychecks are. Yet when I went to name a beneficiary, um, I found out that I couldn't. And I thought, well, that's strange. My married colleagues can all name beneficiaries. Um, I've been with my boyfriend for 12 years, but I didn't want to name him. I wanted to name my sister. I wanted her to have that economic security. And then I assumed that you could name a family member. And I was told, no, not just can you not name someone if you're unmarried, but your um, <laughs> every payment that I've made goes right back into the system. 
and it subsidizes married people's, you know, their right. beneficiaries. Now right. it gets worse. <laughs> so <laughs> it gets worse. So not only is this the case, but I then learned a, 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 the most mind boggling thing to me was that anyone who's been married for 10 years, even if they've been divorced, um, can access their ex-spouse's social security benefits, monthly checks, if he or she predeceases them. So let's take someone like Newt Gingrich, a great opponent of divorce, like many Republican people wants to have cooling off periods and uh, put put obstacles uh, in, in, in front of those who want a divorce. And, and he's, he's full of piety and vim and vigor. He's been divorced twice. He's on his third marriage. First woman, they were married for over 10 years. Second wife married for over 10 years. Number three, they hit the 10 year mark. If he predeceases these women, they can all claim his social security benefits. And that's my taxes paying for those for those women who you know may not have paid a dime into the system. Now, what Nancy Polakoff explains, and she's much more expert on this than me, she's a lawyer and she represents non-marital people, is that the system has basically comes out of the 1950s model, Sylvia, that you're talking about, so yeah. that it comes out of the idea that everybody should get together and support the spouses of, of high earners. And that's what we're all doing. Um, but effectively, it's outrageous. Uh, it's a federal program. If there were a, a particular racial group ethnic group, religious group that was shut out of this system yet asked to contribute to it, there would be marches and demonstrations every day. But yet non-marital people such as myself are expected to suck it up. It's but very strange. People, as you said, you were surprised and you're in, in it's, this. It's not area. in the news because it's it's naturalized. It's, it's right. supposed to seem not just normal, but positive. And it's well, really highly prejudicial. Let's let's move on to a couple of other areas. I, you know, when we talk about non-marital, you said you've been with your your boyfriend for 12 years. That's a very long time. Yet that really doesn't really mean anything to certain things, as you said, social security. You've made a commitment to each other, and you know, marriage, um, yes, it gives benefits, which you know, as you said, most people don't even really know the benefits that they're not getting when they're not married. You've made a commitment and you've made the decision that your commitment is as good as anyone else who has decided to go and get a piece of paper, have a big ceremony, have a social register, be able to get, you know, the social security, be able to put someone on their insurance. So how do you see us moving along where we could take a commitment and we could take being with someone as a committed partner and not having to go the next step because, not because we're against marriage, but because we don't want to be married. We like where we're at and that piece of paper isn't going to change that. Yeah, I think those are, those are in a way like actually three questions. 
So if I could break them down. um, Right ahead. Okay. You you name one thing, which is social security, um, which is, um, again, a very American thing um, that Europeans and uh, others are very surprised by Israelis. uh, uh, People from other countries are very surprised to learn how many Americans get their social, their health insurance through their jobs. The problem in the 1970s, there was a lot of what's now being whitewashed over and and overlooked history among uh, gay rights activists, among feminists, among uh, civil rights activists. And what it said was, let's uh, separate out the privileges that are accorded married people from the privileges that are accorded single people or non-marital people or people that are living together or people that are LAT living together apart, um, meaning living, living apart, but together as couples, right. uh, people who are celibate, people who are, you know, have multiple sexual partners, but close, you know, live with close friends. I mean, th- there was this idea of family diversity and that everyone should get the same basic social supports that would keep them from falling through the interstices in the social fabric. Um, And because of that, a lot of employers started offering civil partnership benefits. So you could call it either a domestic partnership or a civil partnership, but definitely um, Ben and Jerry's, IBM, uh, these were not small companies. A lot of universities, including Oberlin College, my alma mater, said you you know if you register as a domestic partner you can we'll put that person on your health insurance you don't need the piece of paper you don't need the license we're not here to adjudicate and regulate your sex life we're here to employ you and we want your family whatever you consider that to be to be insured so and when did that change um, that changed unfortunately i hate to say this it changed Recently, after Obertful versus Hodges, Hodges, the Supreme Court decision, um, employers like Corning, um, Delta Airlines, and my university started yanking domestic privileges on the argument that everyone can get married now. So the idea was, let's create a default to marriage or give everything up model which is really no choice at all. It effectively forces people to get married so that if they get, God forbid, kidney disease, they yeah, they can insurance. get dialysis. It's not a, it's it's not a choice when you're when you're shoehorning people into that. My boyfriend did get sick a couple of years ago. He got a, a, a rather unusual virus. And when I called my HR company and, and I didn't I and I suggest that all non-marital people do do this, by the way. Don't ask. Just say, I'm putting my partner on my um, health plan. What paperwork do I need to fill out? Put them on the defensive. The woman marriage explained to me that um, I could get married. And then I, and then within two weeks, I'd have something called a change of circumstance form yes. that I would fill out. Yes. And magically, <laughs> magically, our relationship would mean something. Well, I said we 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 can't get married. We we don't want the government in our bedroom. We uh we can't make promises that are unenforceable. I'm not going to commit to honor and cherish someone. How, how can I how who how can you qualify that? We certainly don't want to 
wave our congratulatory, you know, we're together pom-poms and have a big party. That's, that kind of seems, frankly, a little bit gauche and ridiculous to us. But for the most part, our relationship works because we live it privately. However, he's sick and he needs care. And I, I need, I've been a good employee of this university. I'm a tenured professor. I need him on my health plan. And, and she just kept saying, you can get married. And um, it, it had, you know, it had come up earlier when he was employed and tried to get something called an FSA for me, which is like a card where you go and you, you, it, it, they're very desirable now because you can roll over to the next year what you haven't used. Yeah. But you get a certain amount of money from your partner's um, account and you can use it for things like eyeglasses, which it turned out I needed. And the IRS makes it illegal for anyone but married people to offer these to each other. So um, this is pretty serious stuff. Um, a colleague of mine who I very much respect, Kath Professor Kathleen Hermes, Catherine Hermes, who I, um, uh, you know, she said something so interesting to me. She said, my girlfriend and I were criminals for the first 20 years of our relationship. And now that she's ill, I have to marry her. Why is the government so interested in my sex life? Can't they just, can't they back off a little bit? And I said, we feel, you know, we kind of feel the same way. Now your second question, sort of how do we get like past this fetishizing of marriage and this tying of entitlements to marriage? Um, I really think the first step is to stop conceptualizing it in terms of couples. Um, and I feel like when we, we, have these conversations and I see them in the public domain. Um, very frequently it's, I'm an unmarried couple. We're a married couple, but we're unmarried, but we've been together longer than you as a couple, but we're a couple. <laughs> we're happy, but we're an unhappy couple, but we're married, but we're working it out. And I, and I, I think that we should look at what France does. They have a, um, an agreement called PACS, P-A-C-S is the acronym. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in French because I'll botch it. But if, if you um, register with the government basically saying that this person is someone you live with, you share the necessities of life with, you purport to be in a permanent relationship with, and you consider your family, you can... Um, share social security and health insurance benefits. It does not have to be a lover. It can be your best friend. It can be your uh, cousin. It can be your teacher who's been your great mentor for many years that I have someone in my life like that. Um, and, and as long as you consider that person family and it's reciprocal, uh, you can basically get the benefits of marriage. It doesn't really have anything to do with having a sexual relationship. I think we have to remove romantic exceptionalism from the picture and think of this in terms of uh, the bonds that create a family. People configure families differently. Some configure it around an erotic couple, but some don't. And and we have to think of the household as a um, not having a one size fits all model that brings us back to the 1940s when left handed children were forced to write. Oh, tell me about it. 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was trying to impose this cookie cutter model on everyone, and the results were actually pretty terrible. So um, I guess that's my my answer to your question. Let's think about let's move beyond conjugality and think about what um, the quality and depth and longevity and seriousness of the relationship, rather than are they <laughs> as Christian says, skin to skin. That's that's one of his one of his great songs. Well, you know, when we when you go into a doctor's office, you know, the eye doctor, um yeah. the, the the chiropractor, the dentist, and you start filling out forms, yeah, there's always single, divorced non-married and what's hysterical is considering it's not even legal in the state of Connecticut. It's not, it's not that it's not legal. It's not looked at. It doesn't count. Um, domestic partnership, which they took away. It, it's yeah. no one's business. What do they need it for? So I check off all the boxes, you know, except for. Yeah. And, and, and I just write not applicable, but I, I think that the, we see it always in in doctor's offices in in hr forms again and again when you even when you open a bank account or you need to need beneficiaries or you sit down you know with, with a pension plan anything married it's it's just really, it, it's married single, married single it's a binary and it's so misrepresenting of the way people live their lives today um I'm going to be a little crass here and just publicize a an excellent book by my wonderful colleague, Dr. Bella DePaolo, who's been advocating for non-marital people for 30 years. It's called How We Live Now, Redefining Home and Family in the 21st Century. And she went all over the country and interviewed groups of friends who had committed to live together, uh, couples that were in serious relationships but lived apart like Anita Hill and her her boyfriend Chuck Malone um women who lived together in a kind of golden girl setup you know four women in their 60s um all kinds of different there were even siblings that had chosen to build houses next door to each other now and and this I'm not even touching on the 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 range of what she found but she calls these people life space pioneers and I feel like um, there's no form that can reflect that because the range is so enormous. So couldn't the form in a doctor's office just say, for instance, what the real question is, are you covered on someone else's insurance? <laughs> That's why they write all those things. That, I mean, in other words, it's not, it's, the real question is, can we, can someone else be billed for this? And if they could just say that and not have you and I and, and so many other people have to dance around it and write crazy things, I totally agree with you. I think the binary is becoming really crushing. Um, and, you know, I just would like to add a story that, that I feel is very, very sad that illustrates this. Um, and many people don't know this because it didn't make headlines. But in the terrible days after 9-11, the awful, awful days after 9-11, um, a committee was set up and it was headed by a guy named Kenneth Feinberg. 
and he was um, a lawyer, and he was given the very onerous task of assigning a cash value to the life of every person that had been lost in 9-11. And before he did anything else, he immediately separated out the married from the unmarried, and he gave the spout, the the widows and widowers, $50,000. Nobody who was in a long-term non-marital relationship, whether it be parents with their child, best friends, brothers, um, writer dies, you know, we have all kinds of words for friends now, BFF, my, my, you know, life partner, who's my best friend, you know, anybody, nobody else got that 50,000. And, and for me, it was just, a terrible moment because as bad as it was, and of course there were much larger issues at stake, still it was saying non-marital lives don't matter as much as marital ones. We, we're we're assigning a cash value that signifies that. And um, still when I tell people this story, many people don't believe me. They think I'm making it up. Well, look it up. Feinberg has said he made a mistake. He wishes yeah. he hadn't divided it that way. It, it wasn't something that was publicized. And that's no. why there was no, you know, there pushback. was yeah. absolutely no pushback because it wasn't publicized. Right. And, you know, the thing is, um, I mentioned to you, I heard Goldie Horn, who, as most people know, has been with her partner, uh, Kurt Russell, for years and years. And she said that, you know, for them, it's much easier because they can financially afford to not get married. They don't look to have to subsidize their health insurance or any other expenses um, or entitlements that will come from getting married, which is, as we're talking about, for non-married people not to have the same benefits. I mean, look at all the single women, the single uh, parents, I mean to say, that are out there, both men and women, mostly it's women, you know, uh, as far as single parenting. We don't get the same benefits. In fact, we're looked upon when we go to, especially um, single parents who are female, you go to rent, you go to buy, and you're looked upon like you have two heads and they try putting you through hoops they don't think you're going to do because you're not a family. You're not. Uh, um, and in fact, person. there's that, that, that's okay. So someone could listen to what you just said and say that that's anecdotal. Uh, I want to mention that Bella DePaolo, who I, I just brought up, did a mm-hmm. study on this. She ran a focus group where she had people go out and try to rent apartments. And there were, she, they, they were plants, you know, basically. And it was um, some married couples, some single people, and some people renting with friends. And the married couples got like, oh, this was in 2015, got like an overwhelming, overwhelming they were accepted without even like uh, with the most minimal kind of background checks and so like all good social scientists she and her team immediately ran it again 
Uh, but they took the realtors out of the equation and they just had people like knocking on doors and saying, can I rent to you? Can I rent to you? And then she and her fellow researchers called to follow up. And they said, we're just wondering why you didn't rent to Jane and Alexandra, but why you did rent to Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Gruber. And they said, oh, because they're married. They're they're better tenants. Everybody knows married people are families. They're stable. They're, they're you know, and, and 80%, 80% of the people interviewed just said it. They were very unselfconscious. Can you imagine, Sylvia? Yes, if I can, because I've had it happen. I want, I want to run this by you in a different venue. What if... What if she had called and heard, oh, we wouldn't rent to non-Hispanics. Uh, they're, they're unstable. They don't, uh, we, we only rent to, to uh, we wouldn't rent to, to Hispanics. We only rent to, not, to non-Hispanic people because everyone knows they're more stable. Um, it would be lawsuit city. I mean, after, and as, as rightfully it should have been with the married non-married prejudice, but because marital, um, what Bella calls singleism, what I call marriage stat- relationship status discrimination is so deeply embedded in the fabric of our culture. Um, the, the, the landlords were not even in, down in Virginia where this was run. They were not even self-conscious about saying it. That, that kind of startles me, you know? I mean, geez. Um, yeah, I, I feel I feel very, very much that we have as non-marital people quite a ways to go. But um I wouldn't say things are starting to change, but people who study this subject are starting to talk to each other. And I think that's a that's a positive. Well, one of the other things is, is that, as we talked about, a lot of the people who got married in the 50s and the 60s who are now either uh, divorced or have lost their spouse do not want to get married again. They want, they're looking for a partner if they're looking. And whether that partner is, as you said, a golden girls situation where three or four women uh, live together because it's just more economical or, you know, somebody meets someone and their commitment is, you know, they're either living together or they both, for whatever reason, keep their own place and they get together. They're as committed as a married couple. So that is changing. And what's funny is that it's changing with the people who were so, um, uh, educated to get married back yes in and that I, I day. part of the pro- part of the problem with that indoctrination that they received was that it was it was far more extreme than exactly. any any group that I'm ever aware of and and Stephanie Kuntz is the socio- sociologist who's really done the empirical work on this and um how Love Conquered Marriage is an excellent book if you want to really get into the history of this. But, you know, basically what she says was so different about the United States in the 1950s is that um, 
never before and never since uh, this 20 year window had so many people across the socioeconomic spectrum, across the gender spectrum, uh, urban people, rural people, white collar workers, blue collar workers, men, women, black, white, um, Jewish, Christian, every every you know, urban dwellers, people who lived in you know, remote areas, never before had they been so unified in their concept that marriage was the solution. That was a really, really singular moment. And um, part of believing that was believing that you and your spouse were going to be everything to each other. Um, there were many books and advice columns that said to jettison your single friends, That's... to only be friends with other couples. There were, uh, again, the psychiatric industry field does not distinguish itself in this particular moment uh, because it it basically said that uh, women friendships particularly were neurotic and, and should be discouraged after marriage because they would detract female energy from the family and the children and the husband. And um, never before ever, and my, the 18th century people that I studied, the authors would have, would have laughed. They would have launched a rearguard action against this. They would have found it preposterous had it been said that two people should mean so much to each other should turn to each other for everything, should always speak in the plural, should be totally emotionally enmeshed, should be totally financially enmeshed, should be child-rearing partners, and should also have a lifelong sexually hot love affair. That's a lot to burden a relationship with. And I think it's so, you know, it's so pressured that when people got out of it, I really think it was like, my God, I can relax. I'm going to interrupt you again. It's also Absolutely. a very dangerous thing because Absolutely. so many women um, wound up getting a surprise because they had no idea of their finances. Um, you know, uh, if one spouse passed away, they had no one to turn to. They had no one to talk to. If there were any problems going on, I, they were they were cut off from everything that they knew before and from the people they knew before. And Absolutely. so at the age of 60, 70, 80, you know, they're out there trying to get a foot into life again. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a lot of people just don't know how to do that. And what they were indoctrined to do and how they were taught to do it, um, that it is exactly what society said you're supposed to do. And if you don't, you're an outcast. And mm, as you said, absolutely. you know, yeah. things are changing as far as acceptance of non-married uh, couples, but they're not changing as far as the benefits. In fact, the the... The benefit situation is in some ways getting worse, unfortunately. But I it think it's getting worse. Changing, and I think that is sort of a 
a hostile reaction on the part of the marriage movement, which formed in the year around the year 2000 and uh, based its program on the fact that the 1950s was a monolithic model that had always been and had preserved civilization. Now, let me just explain. <laughs> this is preposterous at every level. Uh, if we've been homo sapiens, if we've been in our current bodies for about 150,000 years, marriage is a pretty recent institution. It's about 5,000 years old. That's not that, that old. Um, let's say that before that, let's talk about before the Paleolithic age, it seems from what anthropologists tell us that people were peripatetic. They traveled in band, band groups uh, that, and, and they, they get hunted and gathered and foraged and in groups of about 150 to 200 and sharing, sharing childcare, sharing, everybody worked, women and men worked to get, nobody, it, it wasn't the fifties. Nobody could afford to just have one person sitting, you know, sitting at home reading magazines. That, that That's ridiculous. But, but certainly sharing, perhaps even sexual sharing, but certainly sharing of a hunt of, of what you gathered of, of clothing, of, of the care of the elderly, the care of children had to take place because if it didn't, the whole group would die. Right. I mean, no two people could have expected to be everything to each other without expecting to die within about a month. So the whole marriage movement's idea of history is, is so silly uh, that it, it had always been like the 1950s and then those crazy bra burners came along and, you know, uh, first of all, the 50s, it was no picnic. We all know that, that, you know, birth control was, it was very hard to get if you weren't married. That's it was right. illegal to transport. Uh, abortion was not available. Gay people were closeted. They were, the, many did hard time for, for uh, in, in prisons or in psychiatric institutions for simply uh, dating and, and doing the, the normal, the, the thing that came naturally to them. I mean, it was, it, it, it's easy to put a nice gloss on it. Oh here. no, the fifties was not glossy. No, it, but it wasn't. It wasn't. But I, I want to add that um, I I feel like um, Lewis Coser, a great sociologist, has described marriage as a greedy institution, and what he means by that is it makes complete demands on a person's time and identity, and so the like the ultimate greedy institution, he would say, would be like a religious cult. Like they demand that you come in and you cut off from everybody else. You drop your friends. You don't talk to your parents. You, you know, you take a new name. Like that's, that's extreme. But he said marriage in a way that 1950s model, it did that. It demand, it discouraged anything outside the household to the point that, yeah, people got, uh, got very isolated and, and Betty Friedan in the feminine mystique came up with, what I still think is a really wonderful term for it, uh, the problem that has no name. Uh, uh, women, uh, she felt suburban women were floating. They were disoriented. They missed those bonds of friendship that, from college, from the old neighborhoods, immigrant neighborhoods that they had left behind. They didn't want to be alone in a house. The no. way suburbs are set up, there's no sidewalks to walk. In those post-war houses, there are no porches like in 18th century villages where you you sit on the porch and you wave at your neighbors that they, they were really very 
you know, the backyard and the, the home was, was very private and very insular. And I, I think very depressing. So, um, no, I, I think, um, the women's movement, the second wave was not a young women's movement. Uh, and many of its pioneers, including the late Barbara Seaman have said this, they said we had to learn what to be skeptical of what we were told. And we learned it when we weren't kids, you know. Uh, now, right. I, I do think, though, that I want to add one thing, which is it's not just the gray divorcees. And um, it's an enormous amount. Um, let me check this article that I have here. The number of older Americans living alone is not just on, is on the rise. 16 million people age 65 and older in the U.S. live alone, three times as many as that group in the 1960s. And well over a third of people who are getting divorced now are over the age of 50. So that's a huge, a huge shift. Um, but it's also the, the millennials. Uh, when they're interviewed, they say they often that they don't want to get married, that they're, it, it, they don't see what the value of it is, as Kurt and Goldie have often said. And they say it very nicely. They just say, what's it going to do for us? We've been together forever. We love each other. What's it? I mean, what would it give us? What would it give us that we don't have? And um, millennials are asking that same question. So it's, I think it's the, the more mature Americans and it's also the, um, the, the young people that are asking these questions. Well, Jackie, Jacqueline Geller, <laughs> I appreciate your time today. The book, Moving Past Marriage, Why We Should Ditch Marital Privilege and Relationship Status Discrimination and Embrace Non-Marital History. Um, there's so much more we could talk about. I, know. Unfortunately, I, I feel like we're, we're just getting started. Well, we're going we'll continue. Um, I, I definitely so. believe that. But if you had one piece of advice or one thing that you want people to take away from our conversation, what would it be? Um, I'm really glad you asked. Um, Sylvia, I think that the reason non-marital people have not galvanized as a group the way other disenfranchised American groups have is that we have a very troubled relationship to our own history. Like women's history, like black history, like gay history, our history has been, um, I'm not going to say suppressed because that makes it sound like a, you know, a plot by a cabal, which it isn't. <laughs> it's been, it's been overlooked. And I think that once we connect with non-marital role models, and my book mentions Buddha, Florence Nightingale, who built single-handedly built nursing, Hildegard of Bingen, a very important mystic, Catherine Burblodgett, who invented the coating that is on these eyeglasses that I'm wearing and was the first female physicist to be hired at General Electric, um, Michelangelo. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I can't even think of what culture would be without non-marital people, Hanasenesh, who was uh, sent in, uh, parachuted in behind enemy lines and, and wouldn't give up any names when the Nazis tortured her and put her before the firing squad. I mean, I can, I can think of non-marital people that, that make 
that make me feel such awe. And there's a lot of continuity running through this history. And I think when we, history can only reveal what people are ready to hear, but I think Americans are ready to hear it now. Um, whether you're married or not married or planning to get married or unsure or you know, fiercely committed to non-marriage like I am, read a biography of someone who never married. Read the biography of Maggie Kuhn, who challenged the retirement age of 65 and was an anti-aging, you know, anti-ageist activist. And when she was asked why she never had a husband, she just said, pure luck. <laughs> that was a, She's an amazing woman. I never heard of her before I started this book. But find some person, an artist, a scientist, it could be Newton, um, a poet, it could be Alexander Pope, a painter, it could be Francis Reynolds. Find someone like that and study their life and see how not being married was a source of joy, of inspiration, and of community for them. And then non-marital history can start to come to life if we all are better informed. And then I think non-marital consciousness can start to build and our society might become more equitable. But that's the, the takeaway that I would give. Okay. okay. Um, again, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation, which we will continue on. I hope we do. And this has been just such a pleasure, Sylvia. And I might mention that Sylvia Breckman herself is a pioneer. Um, I cover her in my in my book and in other interviews I've done. I don't need to go over her accomplishments here, but she has led a rather extraordinary life and made some very extraordinary choices on her own. Uh, with sheer grit and creativity. And um, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but I admire you tremendously and I'm very honored to be um, interviewed by you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.